God's personal name in the Hebrew Bible is spelled as a tetragrammaton. Today, we're going to discuss what is God's personal name and survey its use in the book of Genesis and in the beginning of Exodus. So let's find out what it reveals about God on All Things Apostolic. Tetragrammaton is a Greek word that means consisting of four letters. Tetra means four and grammaton means letters. The term is applied to the four-letter Hebrew transliteration of God's name, meaning it's a conversion of the four Hebrew letters of God's name to four corresponding English letters. The letters written and read from right to left in Hebrew are Yod, He, Vav, He. In English, reading from left to right, the letters are Y-H-W-H. Now, sometimes you might see it in the older style of Y-H-V-H, and there is some debate about the third letter because modern Hebrew recognizes it as a Vav with a V sound. But many scholars believe that in the time of ancient Israel, for example, in the time of Moses or David, that it would have been pronounced more as a W sound. So, for example, in modern Hebrew, the name of David, uh, which has a V sound, you'd pronounce it as David. But in ancient Hebrew, it probably sounded more like Dawid. <laughs> and some seminaries teach this pronunciation. I personally learned the modern Hebrew pronunciation, so I'm used to saying Vav with a V sound. And there are other differences between the pronunciation of modern Hebrew and ancient Hebrew, but that is beyond the scope of our discussion today. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to talk about the controversy of pronunciation because it's important to know about it, but it's not the focus of today's episode. In ancient Hebrew, words were only written with consonants and not with vowels. Let's look at an example in English so you can see what that would look like. Here is the sentence, the cat chased the mouse. Below it is the same sentence, but without the vowels. Now, it could seem a little tricky to know what words are written because we're used to relying on the vowels, but ancient Israelites were used to not having the vowels. And in fact, if you go to Israel today, there are road signs written in Hebrew and they don't have vowels. And most of the newspapers are not written with vowels. So it is possible for people to recognize words without vowels. And of course, context can help a reader to know what the correct words are. The Masoretes were a group of scribes who worked to preserve the biblical text around AD 500 to 900 by meticulously copying the text and then adding vowels so that the pronunciation would be preserved. Here's an example. This is Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The Hebrew Bible was originally written like the top example, all consonants and no vowels. The bottom example has vowels. The Masoretes did not want to change the text itself, so they added vowels as points, which are combinations of dots and dashes both above and below the consonants. 
This system of vowel pointing allowed them to preserve the original text as well as the pronunciation. However, there was an ancient Hebrew tradition that God's name was too sacred to write or pronounce. So when the Masoretes added vowels to the personal name of God, they used the vowels from the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And they inserted those vowels between the consonants of the tetragrammaton. Then, when a person was reading the text, they would see the vowels for the word Adonai, and they would be reminded to speak or say the word Adonai when they came to the tetragrammaton, instead of pronouncing the actual name of God. I was taught to say Adonai when I began to learn Hebrew and to read from the Hebrew Bible. In some cases, the vowel pointing is for Hashem, which means the name. So it's customary to say Adonai or Hashem. And this tradition dates back to at least the Hellenistic period, um, probably around 330 BC, even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The translators used the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, in place of the divine name, which is further evidence that using the word Adonai or Lord was traditional as a substitution instead of speaking the personal name of God aloud. So how do we know the difference between the tetragrammaton and the actual word Adonai in the Bible, since both words are translated as Lord? Well, thankfully, most English versions of the Bible, including the King James Version, translate the Tetragrammaton as Lord in all capital letters. So if you see the word Lord in caps in your Bible, it's referring to the personal name for God. If you see the word Lord with a capital L and the other letters are lowercase, then it's referring to the Hebrew word Adonai. Now, before we move on, I want to emphasize that the Tetragrammaton is God's personal name. Other words such as El Shaddai, which is God Almighty, or El Elyon, the Most High God, are titles. And it's okay to address God by his titles, but his personal name is Yahweh or Jehovah. And we don't know for sure which pronunciation is correct. And we could have a whole episode arguing for each one of those. There are people who believe for both. And, but ultimately, we don't know which is the correct one. So I'm not going to jump into that fray in this particular, uh, this particular episode. Other people have already done a thorough analysis on that topic. So you'll probably hear me refer to both names today. Um, but the divine name can also be shortened to Yah, and it was used in some personal names. So let's just look at a few examples. Remember that for the Hebrew, we're going to read from right to left. So Jonathan is Yahonatan. The initial Yod and He at the beginning of the word stand for Yahweh or Jehovah. And then the ending of the name, Natan, is the verb to give. So his name means Yahweh has given or Jehovah has given. Another example is Jehoshaphat, pronounced in Hebrew as Yehoshaphat. Again, we see the Yod and the He at the beginning of the word, which is a shortened form of God's name. And then the ending of the name is Shaphat, 
which means to judge. So his name means Yahweh has judged or Jehovah has judged. You may also recognize the shortened form of the divine name in a word that we commonly say at church. Hallelujah is made up of the root halal, which means to praise, and yah, which is the shortened form of God's personal name. Hallelujah is an imperative form, which means it's like a command. So when you say hallelujah, you're literally saying to praise God, but you're referring to his personal name in a shortened form. So what does his name mean? Well, the four letters of the Tetragrammaton are from the root meaning to be. And some have understood the original meaning to be something like he who is or he who brings being into being. It could be translated, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, or perhaps even I am the one who is. Regardless of the specific translation, the name demonstrates that God is fully self-sufficient and his existence does not depend on anyone or anything. Everyone else depends on him for existence. Now, a very interesting question is when did God reveal his personal name and how? So I spent some time and scanned Genesis to look for scriptures that include the Tetragrammaton. And I'd like for us to look at some key examples and go ahead and follow along with me in your Bible if you have it available. From Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3, only the word Elohim is used, Elohim meaning God. So these scriptures cover God's work of creation. Then there is a shift, and the Tetragrammaton is paired with Elohim 12 times, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 1. So our first introduction to the personal name paired with Elohim, which means God, is in reference to the Garden of Eden and creating Adam and Eve. Creation was more general, but this is more personal. So we see this transition from Elohim to using the Tetragrammaton. Now, when the serpent is introduced in chapter three, verse one, the Bible says that he was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. Lord God is a combination of the Tetragrammaton and Elohim together. But when the serpent talks to Eve, he only says Elohim. He doesn't use God's personal name. Eve responds by clarifying the instructions that were given, and she calls him Elohim. She doesn't use the personal name either. The serpent responds to Eve again using Elohim. So the serpent never uses the personal name of God. And then in verse 8, the Bible talks about the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. And we have this shift back to God's personal name being paired with Elohim. And throughout the interrogation and the judgment, this combination is used seven times. And that concludes chapter three. So we have this very interesting pattern of creation being Elohim, then the more personal aspect of creation with Adam and Eve being the personal name combined with Elohim. And then the discussion between the serpent and Eve only use Elohim. But when God returns to the scene after the fall, he is again referred to as Lord God, his personal name paired with Elohim. 
Now, this may seem like random jumping from names and terms, but it's not. And so I just want to throw in a little something on the side here. Some of you may have heard of the documentary hypothesis. It's a theory that was proposed by some Bible scholars who believed, or one particular one and others adopted it, who believed that the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, were pieced together from writings by different people in different times. This hypothesis became extremely popular for a time, and at its core, it was an attempt to prove that Moses did not write the Pentateuch. And these changing uses of the name and the titles of God, as we're reading through the narrative, was supposedly evidence that there were different writers. Now, thankfully, in recent years, biblical scholarship has basically debunked the theory and it should certainly raise a red flag about getting caught up in some new fad of biblical interpretation that discredits what the Bible clearly states. Rather than viewing the different uses of God's name and titles as evidence of different writers, when we know that Moses was the writer, we can gain insight by trusting that he had a reason for how he wrote it. So it's worth taking the time to examine it carefully. So let's keep going. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, there is a shift. Chapter 4 opens by saying, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Eve used God's personal name. This is the first time someone has spoken God's personal name. When Eve spoke to the serpent about God's rules, she called him Elohim. And it's possible that she was doing that because that is how the serpent had referred to him. But when she talked about bearing a child God had given to her, she referred to him by his personal name. And when she spoke about Cain, I'm sure she was probably thinking of God's promise back in Genesis 3.15. Now, throughout the remainder of chapter four, with Abel's murder and the curse of Cain, the personal name of God continues to be used. And then the chapter concludes with an interesting verse. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. There began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's all caps. They called upon the personal name of God. The name Enos means to be weak, faint, or frail. It could be that the name was Seth's way of humbly acknowledging human weakness, which is in stark contrast to the pride of Cain's descendants. So it appears here that we have the beginning of the worship of God and some type of acknowledgement of him in which people are calling on his personal name. Chapter 5 addresses the family tree, and the word Elohim is used a few times. Near the end of the chapter, in verse 29, Lamech calls his son's name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Lamech referred to God's personal name. Chapters 6 through 9 cover the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. And the Bible sometimes uses Elohim, which means God, and sometimes uses the Tetragrammaton. And only one time are they used together. 
chapter 8, verse 20, indicates that Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and it uses the tetragrammaton. In chapter 9, verse 26, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and he uses the tetragrammaton. Then in chapter 11, with the Tower of Babel, and chapters 12 and 13, with the covenant with Abraham, the tetragrammaton is used exclusively. Specifically in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, the Bible says that Abraham builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Abraham, which at this point was still named Abram, specifically called upon God's personal name. And in chapter 13, verse 4, again, he called on the name of the Lord. In chapter 14, we have a new title for God. He's called El Elyon, Most High God, by Melchizedek, in verses 18, 19, and 20. In verse 22, when the king of Sodom tried to convince Abraham to take the goods from conquering the other kings, Abraham refused and referred to Yahweh, or Jehovah, as the Most High God. So he used the same title that Melchizedek had said, Most High God, but he added the personal name as well. In chapter 19, when the angel saved Lot and his family, they used the personal name of the Lord. In chapter 21, after making a covenant with Abimelech, Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called on the name of the Lord using God's personal name. After God provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, or Yahweh-Yireh, which means Jehovah or Yahweh provides. And we could keep going, but I just wanted to provide a brief survey of about roughly the first half of Genesis to give you an idea of how God's personal name was used, and by whom, and in what circumstances. Definitely, the name was known. So let's jump ahead to Exodus, where there are several key verses that we should examine. In chapter 3, God was commissioning Moses. Moses was concerned that when he was going to talk to the children of Israel, that the God of their father sent him, that they would say, what's his name? What shall I say unto them? Verse 14 says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. In Hebrew, the word for I am is eye, and it comes from the verb to be. God was making a clear statement of his self-existent eternal nature. And this is really crucial because God's personal name, printed as the tetragrammaton, is also connected to the verb to be. So when God says, I am, he's using another word that correlates to his personal name, both of which connect to the verb to be. So God is expressing his identity and his existence. In the next verse, God further tells Moses that he should say to the sons of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. God provides his personal name as shown in the Tetragrammaton. So Moses is commanded to tell the people that Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of their fathers, 
has sent him. The Premier Study Bible has a great study note saying that moving from the broad I am expression, God declared his name as Jehovah, narrowing down to a relationship-specific identity with the children of Israel. He moved from the general understanding of the self-existent eternal God to the personal God of the patriarchal promises. If we jump to Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, God is renewing his covenant with Moses and says, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. Now, interestingly, the King James Version uses the actual name Jehovah, even though the Hebrew text uses the Tetragrammaton. Also, God seems to be saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were unaware of his personal name. But this, on at face value, seems odd because we know that prior to Abraham, both Eve and Noah spoke of God by his personal name. So did Lamech. And Abraham in Genesis 22, 14, as we talked about previously, named the place where Isaac was almost sacrificed using the personal name of God. In Exodus 4, 1, Moses himself seems to suggest that the Hebrews were already familiar with the name. Moses said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Since Moses wrote Genesis, he knew that the Hebrews knew the name. So let's look at Exodus 6, verse 3 again. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. Now we know that Moses would not have written a contradiction, especially such an obvious one. So a possible explanation and very plausible is that the people prior to Moses knew God's personal name, but they had not experienced the full impact of his name. Think of his name like layers, with each layer revealing more about God's character and who he is. God says that he had revealed himself as God Almighty, which in Hebrew is El Shaddai. God had shown himself to be eternal, self-sustaining, and all-powerful. But that doesn't mean that they fully knew him. His character was not fully known yet. The promises were distant. But with the Exodus, God was about to pull back another layer to reveal another part of himself and to become personally the God of the new nation of Israel. In essence, he was saying, you may have known my name, but you're about to see my name in action. So we're going to stop here for now, but next week we're going to talk a little bit more about the importance of a name, and then we're also going to discuss the name of Jesus in the New Testament. So please be sure to tune in, and until next week, take care and God bless.